WPHH 9:10 a.m. This is the interview of the week that we have every Saturday. It's that time where we get to come on and introduce you to something local and Catholic, or usually someone local and Catholic, or in this case, someones. Um, and uh, we have a very exciting interview ahead of us. My name is Cecil Anderson, and I'm the North Texas assistant of the Guadalupe Radio Network. Uh, this is a show that Dave Palmer, the executive director, developed, and is one of his favorite parts of his job. And I also enjoy it a lot as well. And so we share it from time to time. And uh, in this particular case, we were reached out to by um, Cistercian Preparatory School. Uh, they sent out a press release, and you know, you get a lot of these things from time to time, but this one said world champions on it. And I was like, well, that's a little bit unusual. I should probably look into this a little bit more. Um, and so I found we found out that uh, their robotics team that we're going to introduce to some of the members from uh, has just in this last uh, couple weeks has won the world champions for first robotics, which is very exciting. And they're going to explain kind of how that works and uh, who they were competing against. It was a lot of teams. It was definitely more than probably you're even thinking about. Um, so it's very exciting. One of our local Catholic schools, they're really close to our station, actually, um, and so it's very exciting for them to come home, these world champions. And so I'd like to introduce you to four of the members, uh, Nathan uh, Como, who is the business captain, uh, Blake Harris, the co-engineering captain, uh, Neil, uh, Neil, I'm just going to have you introduce with your last name for me, will you? Uh, yeah, Neil Paramandla. And he's part of the program team and also uh, some form of the strategy as well. And then Jonathan uh, Zimbolio. Did I get that right? Yes. Uh, awesome. And he's the operator and assistant to a driver, kind of, and he'll, they'll explain what their roles are. Um, it's not actually the first robotics team we've had on uh, Catholic Radio. We've had uh, teach robotics that compete in a different competition, uh, but it's always fun to kind of learn uh, about what young people are doing with the STEM field, especially uh, a Catholic group like this. So thank you, gentlemen, so much for being in with us today. Um, and I'm going to go ahead and start with Nathan. Uh, first off, just uh, talk a little about Cistercian and how long you've been there and a little bit about how you got into the robotics team. Yeah, so Cistercian, so we're a all-boys Catholic high school in Irving and we're run by Cistercian monks. So we have probably more than half of our teachers are monks wearing the white and black habits around the classrooms. Really cool. Uh, and uh, so I've been at Cistercian since fifth grade. So this is, I'm a senior. This is my eighth year at Cistercian. And I joined robotics as a freshman. Uh, my brother actually was one of the founders of the team, so I, he, he pushed for me to join, and I don't regret it at all. Regret it at all. It's been the most uh, exciting and the, the, the most exciting club I've been in, and the one I've enjoyed the most uh, at Cistercian. That's awesome. And Blake, uh, you also are a senior. Uh, have you been at Cistercian for as long as Nathan? Yep, we're, we started the same class. Um, back in 2012, that's, sounds about right. Yeah. 2014. Were you automatically like, you know, dragged into robotics right away as well? Or how long have you been doing it? Um, I was, uh, dragged in by my mother. (laughs) Uh, I didn't want to do it at first. And she said, you're coming to this, you're going to show up and you're going to like it. (laughs) And it turns out I very much did. And so I've been... Uh, for the four years. That's awesome. You know, sometimes mothers do know best. You know? <laughs> All right, and Neil, uh, talk a little about your history with Cistercian and the robotics team. Yeah, so I've been at Cistercian since sixth grade. I'm currently a sophomore, so it's my fifth year here, awesome. I think. And uh, I joined the robotics team as a freshman because a lot of my classmates were doing it, and it sounded quite fun. 
and programming something is something I've always wanted to do. Awesome. And finally, Jonathan. Hi. Yeah, I've been at Cistercian since uh, fifth grade as well. Uh, and uh, one of my good friends, James Navinsky, he's our driver. Uh, he was a big, big advocate for the robotics club in our form. Uh, and uh, in uh, eighth grade, he was giving us presentations on the club, and I thought it was really cool. So I went with him to a, uh, one of our competitions that year in 2020, and I just knew I had to join. Awesome. Uh, and whoever wants to, maybe Nathan, if you want to talk about uh, particularly first robotics competition and how it works in particular like how the season works and roughly what it has to do because sometimes people hear the word robotics and you're like well, what are we talking about you're talking about the little machines that are sometimes on college campuses that bring snacks to students like what are we <laughs> are we talking about like and you know androids people taking over the world talk a little bit about maybe what exactly first does yeah and let me clear the air too it's it's not battle bots you might have oh, seen battle man. bots on tv too so <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. we, we try our best not, not violent to just, robots <laughs> exactly yeah <laughs> so uh so we have a Eight week long season, which starts in January. So in January, so every single year there's a new game, and every game usually has some sort of ball. Sometimes it's frisbees, but they release the game the first uh, Saturday of January, and uh, they drop a huge manual as well, about 200 pages that everyone we we <laughs> ask everyone on our team to read. Most of them read it. Is there a test? Uh, we we actually did, we had a semi test <laughs> this year. I don't know how many people took it, uh, but it's always a good idea to read it. Um, Especially because when you come down when, at the competitions, there's so many little rules that affect everything. Uh, but anyway, so then there's an eight-week build season starting in January going through March. And you have that much time to build a robot to fit the game. And uh, Blake can go into a little bit more of this, but they don't actually give you any instructions. They, they just give you like a few pieces of metal. And they're like, all right, build a robot that can... <laughs> uh, so this year, uh, I can... Try to help y'all picture it. So it's kind of, it was kind of like basketball. So you had a, 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 a hoop-ish thing that's about 10 feet off the ground probably. And you shoot these red and blue balls. They're kind of like uh, four square balls. Uh, so I'd say like about a foot in diameter. Uh, and they're really bouncy. And you shoot them with your robot 10 feet into the air into this basketball hoop thing. Except the basketball hoop's about like six feet wide in diameter as well. Uh, and so you do that for the majority of the game. And then at the end of the game, you have to climb onto these monkey bars uh, that are... Th so there are four of them, and each of them are a little bit higher than the next. So you have to climb onto one, and then climb onto the next one, and then climb onto the final one, which is about seven feet in the air. Uh, but that's just this year's game. Awesome. And Blake, you are the co-engineering captain, and Nathan kind of talked about like you get a pile of metal, and you're like, make a robot and make it do all these things. And honestly, I think most people listening would be like, I would have no idea where even to start with that. So can you talk a little bit about uh, how you go about doing this, and maybe some of the mentorship that you get, or do, are you just completely going in blind? Like, How do you all just sit down and start strategizing this? So what happens is when they drop the the game video and the manual... Uh, we come back to the school for kickoff and we just start deciding, uh, what is our strategy going to be? How would we even go about accomplishing this? Um, and part of what we emphasize in designing our robot is keeping things extremely simple. Um, so a lot of other teams use pneumatics to do, uh, a lot of the functionality. Uh, and we actively avoid pneumatics 
because of how complicated it is. <laughs> uh, I think the most complicated thing we did this year was the addition of a swerve drive, uh, which means the robot can go in any direction, in any orientation, full 360 degrees. That was about as complicated as it got. <laughs> Our robot just shot balls into the hoop, and it could climb, and it was majestic. <laughs> oh, and the robot has a name, right? Oh, yeah. yes. Uh, we went with the name Resilience this year because of uh, our last robot only got to play one season uh, before it was canceled, unfortunately, due to COVID. And then we missed out an entire year of play. And we were like, this is our year. We are going to do this. We are resilient. And a lot of teams, actually, a decent amount of teams weren't able to survive the, the pandemic. They didn't have uh, mm. the same commitment from their members afterwards. But we stuck it and we stuck through it and we came out stronger than ever. And it paid off. It did. I was going to say, it was a good t- a name for the robot this year, for yeah. sure. Uh, and Neil, you are part of the program uh, team. So obviously, Blake's and all of his guys, they got to build the robot, but that doesn't make the robot do anything. They just built a robot that sits there. Uh, so the programming department, talk a little bit about what that does, because that also is pretty complex. Yeah, so basically, we program in uh, Java, and we have our programming lead isn't here but he usually does most of the programming and so we make the robot like shoot the ball uh we had a school system of auto aiming and like finding the power based on how far it was from the hub and that was a pretty cool thing that we did with our code um another thing we do with code is during the first 15 seconds of the game it's called like an autonomous mode where the robot like drives itself and so we spend a lot of hours trying to like write the code so that the robot can drive itself and do the most it can do in the game while during those first 15 seconds. And so the programming team usually just mainly works on that and just makes the robot function smooth and majestic. And if I can interrupt <laughs> real quickly, so the first 15 seconds, the autonomous period is super important because all of the shots are worth double. So I, I didn't mention earlier, so shots during the regular period are worth two points, but if you get a shot during the autonomous, it's worth four points, and that can really swing the match. Gotcha, gotcha. 15 seconds is not very long <laughs> to do that, especially to do it autonomously, <laughs> um, but that's really cool. And uh, finally, Jonathan, we're kind of going around. We're going from like building the robot, programming the robot, and now you are the assistant driver, the the operator. So you all had, out of a team of, I forgot to mention, 40, 40 boys, right, mm-hmm. um, doing this. And is, is that on the smaller side for first? Uh, I'd say it's about average. Average? Okay. Yeah. For, okay. For, so 40 members, I mean, it's a lot of people, but I'm sure everyone has a specific job and there's a lot to get done um but you on the day of competitions you are out on the field with your driver and what exactly is that experience like and what do you do uh so during the match it is very chaotic and uh very high energy and so (laughs) it's 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 very easy for the driver to just get overwhelmed too much stuff going on and so uh, me and our coach, uh, we sort of with our uh, talk to our driver during the match. We give him I- important information so he can laser focus in on driving. Um, and uh, so I'll tell him how many uh, how many balls are in different areas of the field, where to go next, how much time is left in the match, how many more balls he needs to shoot when he needs to climb. Lots of stuff that if he were to have to think about himself. 
he would um, he would probably <laughs> panic on the spot. And so it's um, uh, an important job, and I'm I'm very honored to have been chosen as um, to help out with that uh, as a backup driver. This year we had a much more robust uh, driver system. Uh, we actually had tryouts for the first time, I believe, where we had uh, lots of people on the team uh, uh, do different maneuvering and uh, just different things with the robot to see who would be the best. And I was, I'm honored to be chosen as our backup driver uh, in case anything goes wrong. Are you the only backup driver? We've got one other sophomore, Gabe Ramos, um, but uh, we've got... We've got good plans in case something horrible happens to James. Something, <laughs> hopefully not. Or COVID. All of y'all are out. Yeah, that, that's a good point. I <laughs> just want to remind everyone who is listening that you are tuning into the KTH 910 AM interview of the week. And uh, we are talking to a robotics team from that competes with the first robotics competition from Cistercian. And I forgot to mention what your guys' like, team company name is. And can you remind me, it was, uh, uh, what was it again? Uh, Fusion Core. Fusion Core. And uh, you can follow them on multiple different uh, you know ways you can kind of stay in contact with them uh, there is their Instagram which is FRC6672 which is their team number uh, and you can email uh, email them at cistercianrobotics at gmail.com and you can also visit their website team6672 dot cistercian um, and that was the last part what was it dot US yes there we go and so you can find out uh, more about what they're doing uh, throughout the year and they're always looking for sponsors and mentors as well and uh, we're building up to the the last couple weeks where it was very very exciting where you all uh, got to the worlds but uh, before we get there uh, Nathan if you want to talk a little bit about being a business captain when you think of robotics you maybe not immediately thinking of business uh, talk about that element of the uh, competition season yeah well, the team needs money. That's the, <laughs> the robot can be pretty expensive. Pretty Regi- simple. Re- registration itself costs fourteen thousand dollars if you include uh, five thousand for the regional competitions, four thousand for the state competition, and five thousand for worlds. Wow. So that's and then. So overall, our budget is about fifty thousand dollars. Wow. And we're so grateful for all of our generous sponsors, including the Maroney family, the Merrick family, the Gene Haas Foundation, uh, Lockheed Martin, and Mr. Clay Jimenez, uh, among many others. And uh, every donation is really important. So our job on business team is to not only raise the money, but also to keep in touch with our sponsors. So we write newsletters. Uh, we have a design team who designs super cool T-shirts and sweatshirts. Uh, Neil's wearing one of our sweatshirts right awesome. now, actually. Uh, we design buttons and uh, uh, banners and, and flags and all sorts of things. Anything, Any type of merchandise you can think of, we've probably designed it. Uh, and then we also... Uh, plan competitions. So we plan the food and hotels for all away competitions, uh, including the state and, and worlds, which which were in Houston this year. So dealing with uh, booking hotels for about forty people, it's quite a task. Yeah, just a little bit. That's like a very <laughs> large family to keep track of. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, and I'm going to go to Neil real quick because you also part of it is that you uh, first is really big on making sure that STEM is being introduced to especially kids in uh, the community and stuff like that and you talked about there's a lot of things that you all are doing to do outreach but uh, you mentioned in particular you've been doing something with St. Cecilia's do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah so basically once every month we would hop on a Zoom call with them and me and usually one other person Rithvik Gabri would like create a presentation on a specific topic and have a little experiment that goes on to it with it and we would uh, inform the students students beforehand to get the materials for the experiment 
And so in the Zoom meeting, we would go through the presentation and do the experiment, and they would basically like learn a little thing about STEM or science. Um, for example, I did a presentation about viruses, and I guess sort of just educating them on like uh, what are viruses actually and like the importance of washing hands. Mm. And so doing things like that is, I think, the kids have fun, especially with the experiments, seeing the stuff in action. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and so now, obviously, everyone's been listening, and they're like, you mentioned that they are world champions. We need to get to that part. So I'm going to go back to Blake, because as the co-engineering captain, um, kind of how did you all get to, uh, how many competitions you had to get through? How did you get to being at the world's competition for first? So we had to, in the, oh my gosh, sorry. <laughs> You're good. Uh, Texas is in a district-style uh, so we had to rank uh, 23rd in Texas. Uh, we ended up ranking 13th. And we had to go through two regional events, one we had in Fort Worth and one right here in Irving. And that qualified us for states down in Houston. And that scoring there allowed us to make it to Worlds where uh, we finished 13th in Texas uh, so we qualified to be able to go to Worlds. That's awesome. And so the Worlds, we're recording this interview only a few days after the Worlds competition, but it'll probably air uh, later on. But uh, uh, what an exciting weekend. Uh, did Going into it, did you all think you would end up in like the top, or how did you all feel? Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, the night before uh, it all went down, we were given a very, like, we made it this far. We had a good run. <laughs> and we just Hold got... Hold your head high. Yeah, yeah. We got this far. So many other people didn't. We had, we had some great Texas teams we worked with uh, that unfortunately weren't able to make it. Uh, hopefully we'll see them there next year. Um, but yeah. then it came to 7.30 that morning. We got chosen uh, by the First Seed Alliance in our division. Uh, we went through, won the division... And then we went through and won the whole tournament. Man, I can only imagine uh, the elation in that moment. And I'm sure. I, and you mentioned before that there was a lot of there's a lot of high energy in the room. I yes. think we need to clarify that's like a lot of screaming in the room. Like I don't think people understand how intense these sort of competitions are. But um, must have been a great moment. And then to come back to the school and proudly, like you say, you get banners and mm -hmm. you get to hang those up and present the resiliences on display. Um, so pretty fun time, huh? Yeah, mm -hmm. <laughs> and yeah. now uh, in the future you can go around and say we were world champions that year. Exactly. So. <laughs> and yeah. kind of remind people because I don't think we've specifically said how many people were competing. Like first off, in uh, first overall, and then like specifically in that worlds. Uh, so this year it's a little bit down because of COVID. Mm -hmm. uh, so there are uh, over thirty two hundred teams in the world, and I'm I think probably over over twenty countries in the world uh, wow. competing in first. And uh, then in Texas, there are 163 teams. So as Blake said, so we were the 13th ranked team in Texas, which qualified us for Worlds. So at the Worlds competition, there were 456 teams. And uh, they were coming from 13 different countries, 43 different states. Uh, and it was, it was just the coolest experience. Like I made friends w literally with teams from California to Hawaii to Israel to Mexico. Just meeting these kids from all over the world doing the exact same thing we're doing. It's, it's so fun, and 
uh, I actually spent the whole day on Friday walking around with my friends, just talking to teams, going to their pits, just introducing myself to them and just seeing like how their team operates and seeing if we can find a way to improve our team based on what they do. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we actually only have about five minutes left in this interview with uh, the Cistercian Preparatory Schools robotics team competing in the first robotics, and they are world champions now. can wave that banner proudly. Um, but uh, in those last couple of few minutes, I just want to talk a little bit about um, how it's it's really cool that you all are a Catholic school, a sm- you know, smaller Catholic school competing in a competition like this. And kind of now, you know, Cistercian, everyone's going to see that name and, you know, up on the screen and everything like that. And uh, you all also have a team chaplain uh, from the schools, right? Yes, that's correct. So actually, uh, our head administrative mentor is Father Mark Ripperger who is uh, one of the monks at Cistercian. That's awesome. Uh, So it's really, it's a cool uh, thing. And earlier when we were talking, um, Jonathan, you kind of mentioned about how um, the Catholic values are kind of part of how you all kind of treat each other's teams and how you have this, I don't remember what the phrase is that you used. Uh, At first they used the phrase gracious professionalism. It's a huge thing in the the whole organization. Um, It's a mindset of how, teams treat each other, uh, where we're very professional with each other, but we're also very uh, gracious and kind, uh, and we help each other out, even if we're playing against each other. Uh, we, we are uh, uh, gracious in defeat uh, and in, in our success, um, and just the, a lot of the values that stem from gracious professionalism are um, can be seen in our Catholic faith. And so that's a big, that's a big point where we can stand out and say we're, uh, we're Catholics. We, these are a lot of the values that we follow. And so this comes naturally to us through our education at the school. Uh, and so that's a, that's a very big um, part of the competition. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, I love what robotics does as far as teaching lots of life skills from actually, you know, building a robot. I mean, not everyone's going to have to build a robot, but you get to learn how to use tools and other things Uh, or from booking hotels for a lot of people, you know, lots of important things. And we need Catholic engineers and Catholic people in STEM. Um, So it's really uh, exciting that you all are doing this. And so in the last couple of minutes, I just want to go around one by one and talk a little bit about maybe something that you've taken away and learned um, from this past robotics season. Um, you know, maybe a life skill or just, I don't know, fond memory, whatever you want it to be. And we'll start with uh, Jonathan and go around the table. And with our two seniors, you can kind of reflect maybe on your time as Cistercian, because uh, it's only, gosh, going to only be a few more weeks left of school, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. now you're like, oh, man, now I need to finish up school now that the robotic's high. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, Jonathan. Um, I'd say a lot of coordination with people on a team um, and learning how to build a bot, it's not just uh, I do my thing and you do your thing. It's it's a lot of we work together and we get this project done and there's a lot of communication and coordination involved. Um, and that's within the team and outside of the team as well. Uh, something that shocked me about first is just how social it is um, and how, uh, how friendly uh, all the other teams are and how uh, forming uh, alliances with other teams, forming strategies for matches with those other teams. There's a lot of coordination involved there where you can't just uh, seclude yourself with your team. You have to be open and social and friendly to everybody. Awesome. And we'll go along to Neil. Uh, yeah, so 
sort of similar to Jonathan, uh, like cooperating with just other people on the spot. Uh, I was part of like finding the strategy on like how to win our next game or win this playoff match. And so we would like analyze a match and then immediately go talk to the other teams on our alliance and just like being able to click and just talk to them, talk about their robot, talk about what we're going to do for the next match just without like knowing them at all and just on the spot really I think can be very helpful especially if you're like in a work environment just like meeting new people and just coordinating with them to do something that's pretty big absolutely and go ahead Blake absolutely cooperation and working with other people I would say as a senior looking back on it now I realize how much I need to value the time I have because it's, it's very bittersweet. Uh, these past few years have been amazing on the robotics team and I've had so much fun with all my friends. But now it's over and we're going to college and we're all pursuing different things. And I just really learned to appreciate the time that I have with them. Mm, absolutely. And Nathan? So yeah, for me, so two things. Number one is working with a team as well. Uh, it, it takes a whole team to get things done, that you can't do everything by yourself. You have to learn to rely on other people. And number two is just time management, especially <laughs> on the business team. You have so many unrelated tasks that you have to get done that you have to make a to-do list or you're going to forget something. You have to set time aside for everything. And Cistercian has a really hard workload, too, uh, as any Cistercian student can attest to. So <laughs> it's not like we're only doing robotics. We have to manage that with all of our schoolwork as well. Um, and looking back on the four years I'm just happy that we're able to leave a legacy and, and build for the future because we are a really young team. We have a smaller, uh, smaller facilities than most teams. Uh, we don't have as, as much money as some teams. And I feel like what we've done this year is really going to help the next generation of robotics kids at Cistercian get more out of it and spread STEM in, uh, in the Dallas area even more. Awesome. And Nathan and Blake, can you, uh, can you talk about what your plans are for the fall of this next year? Uh, I will be a freshman at Texas A&M University. Awesome. Uh, I'm going to pursue biomedical engineering. Oh, a little bit influenced maybe by robotics, just a little bit. <laughs> uh, very much influenced. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and Nathan? Uh, I'll be going to UT Austin. Oh, <laughs> oh. Rival schools. I was yeah. like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll be studying business honors and plan two. Awesome. Very exciting. Well, thank you all so much again, uh, Nathan, Blake, Neil, and Jonathan from uh, Cistercian Preparatory School uh, and their uh, Fusion Core uh, robotics team competing with first robotics competitions and uh, world champions. Very exciting. <laughs> We're very proud of you. Uh, so thank you so much for taking some time uh, today. If you want to follow their journey, the season's over, you know, this year, but uh, there's always next year and uh, you can follow them on Instagram at FRC6672. Uh, you can and see their website, team6672.cistercian.us. And on there, there you can find ways to contact them if you are interested in sponsoring their team or if you uh, want to mentor them because they're always looking for mentors to help their team as well. And uh, their email is cistercianrobotics at gmail.com. And I forgot to shout out your guys' coach. 
because uh, I know that's probably a big job. And that was uh, D- David Navinsky, right? Yes. Uh-huh. Uh, head engineer and coach. So uh, thank you to him and all the work that I'm sure he has done for the team as well. This has been the KTH 910 AM interview of the week. If you ever have an idea for an interview, uh, let us know. Just email uh, myself or Dave, or you can email us both at kth at grnonline.com. And if it's local and if it's Catholic, we will do an interview about it. Uh, until next time that we speak, I hope you have a blessed rest of your Saturday. God bless. Welcome, everybody, to this edition of the KTH 910 AM Interview of the Week here on the Guadalupe Radio Network. We're glad you're with us. And I think you're going to find this uh, next 20, 25 minutes very interesting because it's a voice and a face you are likely familiar with. But uh, if you're like me, you don't know a lot of the backstory uh, behind Michael O'Neill, otherwise known as the Miracle Hunter. And you've heard and seen him on TV and (laughs) EWTN. Uh, he is an award-winning author, EWTN host, creator of the popular miracle tracking website, MiracleHunter.com. He's a graduate of Stanford University, a member of the Mariological Society of America, and has been interviewed about his research on programs like NBC Today, The Dr. Oz Show, and also featured on the National Geographic Magazine cover story. So we welcome him to the program. Michael, thank you for joining me. Thanks. It's great to be with you. Yeah, I, I guess, and I will say that um, recently Michael was in town uh, to speak to the St. Thomas More Society on a topic called How the Catholic Church Investigates the Supernatural. So I do want to ask you about that and um, and how, you know, the kind of a synopsis of that that talk. But be, before that, I'm just curious, how did you get into all this? And when did this particular topic of miracles really begin to fascinate you? What was What was the catalyst? Yeah, it is a good question, isn't it? I think that uh, people who know me, especially... Uh, in college and beyond, knew, knew me as a, uh, a mechanical engineering major and, and uh, worked for an engineering firm after that. So this, uh, there's no such thing as studying miracles for uh, a living or, or even as an academic pursuit. So this is kind of my own, uh, my own foray. But uh, growing up, I had a great devotion to Mary, uh, instilled in me by my, my mother. And it was because of uh, Our Lady of Guadalupe sort of working a miracle in the life of my mother as a young girl, her own, her own mother, my grandfather, her grandmother came back to the Catholic faith as a result of, of that miraculous intercession. And so as a deal with God, she said uh, she'd teach her children uh, about the story of Our Lady of Guadalupe. So every December 12th growing up, I heard that. And so growing up, I had a great fascination with miracles, whether it was uh, Guadalupe or the Shroud of Turin or any of these things. So by the time I uh, went to Stanford University and I was taking an archaeology class, uh, the professor said, you can write a paper about a significant artifact in the history of the world. And of course, I, I chose the tomb of Our Lady of Guadalupe. And uh, when I dug into that a little bit, you know, I, growing up Catholic, I'd heard of Guadalupe and Lourdes and Fatima, the big ones. But I had no idea that there were hundreds or thousands of other uh, miracle cases that the church had not only investigated, but said were worthy of belief. So... Um, I kind of uh, had this thought that someday when I grow old, I will become uh, a, I will, I will look into miracles a little bit more seriously. And it was around graduation when Condoleezza Rice, the vice provost of Stanford at that time, she gave this advice to me that said, whatever you do in life, become an expert in something. Mm-hmm. And she was saying that she was an expert in one tiny aspect of one year of Czechoslovakian military history. And she knew more about that than any other person in the entire world. And she said, find your sliver of the universe and own it, you know, find your expertise. So 
I thought, what do I want to become an expert in? And sure enough, uh, that sort of set me on this path to register miraclehunter.com and start loading it with information. And then uh, I wrote some books and uh, television shows and, and the whole deal uh, uh, ensued after that. So I think that uh, that was kind of the genesis of the whole thing. Yeah, you know, when I first heard about your program, it, it resonated with me. And I, I think, you know, the average person is fascinated with miracles. And I'd love to hear your take on it. Uh, my, my My thought would be that we all know there's got to be something beyond this world. You know, we have this sense of the supernatural and the miracles kind of confirm that. So I think we're kind of predisposed to believe that there is something going on in the world that we can't quite prove or, you know, a little supernatural element. Would you agree with that? Or why do you think people are fascinated? Yeah, I think everybody has that hunger or that desire or that innate belief, as you say, you know, that there's something more and miracles are just that hint that proof and all miracles are a little bit complicated in their own way. And that's what my book science and the miraculous and even the talk that uh, I gave to the, the Thomas More society kind of hints at. And, but I think that people uh, benefit from hearing miracle stories because it boosts their faith. It, it gives them a little bit more to go on. And it's uh, God's way of just sort of helping us along in the faith journey. Yeah. And are you doing this full time now? Uh, you've mentioned being an engineer. Are you still, is this a side uh, hustle, so to speak, or is this your full time work? So believe it or not, as I mentioned before, there is no such thing as being a miracle investigator, investigator or uh, evangelist, as I might be. But that's my full time job. So I, um, my engineering career is behind me, although I still try to apply some of those principles and methodology to understanding the, the miracles, whether it's data analysis or otherwise. But my life is split between researching, investigating miracles and also telling the world about them. So whether that's in books or doing television and radio for EWTN or leading pilgrimages and taking people to these places of the supernatural, uh, that's my full-time job. So uh, I, I feel it's the, the best job in the entire world. Well, what what makes a miracle a miracle? Uh, you know, th- th- that may sound like a silly question, but how? What's the definition of a miracle? So we talk about miracles, and everybody has all kinds of different uh, conceptions of a miracle. Maybe it's our favorite uh, football team, you know, scoring a game-winning touchdown, or uh, finding that lost wallet or cell phone or wedding ring, or maybe it's getting five consecutive green lights, you know, in, in, uh, <laughs> when you're running late. All these things might be small miracles in their own way, but the miracles that the Catholic Church looks at are, are a very small uh, number of categories. But as a general concept, miracles are something that are rare, they're unexplained, and there's something that, are, that has worked for the good. So if we have something that we just don't know why it happens, then maybe it's a mystery or a marvel. But those things that imply uh, God as a loving Father watching out for us and blessing our lives with these uh, miraculous events, uh, we call those miracles. And so the Catholic Church, as I outline in my book, Science and the Miraculous, we're talking about things like uh, Marian apparitions. We're talking about healing miracles like at Lourdes or canonization causes or weeping statues or the stigmata, the wounds of Christ, or uh, Eucharistic miracles. So there's a very small a uh, number of categories that the church actually implies uh, applies investigation and science to validate. Yeah. Uh, are we bound to believe in miracles? It's a great question, and I think it's absolutely important that people understand this, is that when it comes to modern miracles, uh, we have absolute freedom, as far as the Catholic Church uh, instructs the faithful, to either embrace the miraculous, those things that even the church has said are, is worthy of belief, 
or ignored them completely. So if we were to say that the Tilma of Our Lady of Guadalupe was just a painting, you could say that. I'd argue that you would be wrong, but you could say that, and you could still be a good Catholic in, in good standing. Or you could say the miracles at Lourdes, all those 7,000 remarkable cures of the 70 that the Church has validated. You could say, well, science doesn't know what it doesn't know, but someday we will. You could say those aren't really miracles, and you'd be okay. Or you could say at Fatima, the children were just making it up, and they just uh, they wanted attention. You could say that. Again, I'd, I'd, uh, please send me an email or go to my website, miraclehunter.com, and I'd, you might find a different opinion about that. But uh, the words and works of Jesus Christ as found in the Gospels are the center of our faith, and that's, those are the things we're required to believe. But those things uh, in more modern times, uh, outside of the Gospels, those are completely optional. So I think that uh, the Church handles it absolutely perfectly. Now, there are some things like, let's say, transubstantiation. That, uh, that would be miraculous, right? And we have to believe in that. Or let's say the resurrection of the body, wouldn't that be miraculous? So are there some yeah. parts of our faith that are dogmatic, that uh, miraculous and necessary? Absolutely. And I think that, you know, we have these two uh, bookmark miracles in our, in, our, uh, in, our, in our Catholic faith, the incarnation and the resurrection. If you don't believe in those, you might want to pick another religion. <laughs> you're following the wrong thing. But yeah. um, So yes, there are things that are dogma that we are, as Catholics, obliged to believe. They're essential to our faith. But any of these sort of modern miracles, uh, those are things that we can view that God is giving us these, these, uh, the boost to our faith. Uh, and, and it's not something that we need to embrace. Even the ones that the church has set up feast days or, you know, had basilicas built or canonized visionaries or any of those things, even those cases that seem like the church is really pushing us to believe in them, we can uh, safely ignore them if we so want it. Yes, my guest is Michael O'Neill. He is the Miracle Hunter. He has several shows that run in EWTN, uh, including um, uh, the radio program, 7 p.m. Eastern on Saturdays, and then uh, the, They Might Be Saints, which I think he said Fridays at 5 p.m. Eastern, and uh, he recently was here speaking at the Thomas, St. Thomas More Society. He lives in Chicago. Do you, do you travel a lot? Because, uh, you know, the miracles don't come to you. If you find something that interests you, do you go out and, and go on location? I know you mentioned you go on pilgrimages, but how much travel is involved? There's quite a bit of travel, and it's, it's a great blessing because uh, through EWTN, I'm able to bring some of these places around the world to people's uh, television sets. So uh, we're talking about uh, the show Explore with the Miracle Hunter, which is my travel series where um, I'll be traveling to England and Ireland at the end of this month to capture uh, some footage of some of the famous miracle sites there. Uh, but uh, there is a great deal of travel, whether it re revolves around the canonization causes of American saints. I'm constantly interviewing the vice postulators and the, the miracle recipients of all these cases, but I'm also traveling around the world as well. So uh, it's it's a it's a great gig to get to to travel the world and share these <laughs> miracles with people. Do you do you find that you know you you wish you could triplicate yourself and there's so many that you'd like to do but you're one one person or are there ever times that you're like man i need to find one more or, or is it just is <laughs> a, lot, a lot of material to work with there yeah there's plenty of material and, and believe it or not on my uh on my computer i have you know folders upon folders of future trips planned you know in the works already i think there's a there's a near infinity of uh, miraculous events we think of miracles as rare which they are but when you consider all around the world all these incredible moments that have happened, uh, 
you know, I, I can be doing this for a long time if, uh, if the opportunity is there. Yeah. You know, I, you, I often hear, and you've probably heard it before, that, uh, you know, back in the time of the Bible, miracles were happening all the time, and people were being healed and raised from the dead, but, you know, there, there aren't as many miracles today in, you know, 2022. Would, would you say that's false? Are, are there, is, are, are miracles kind of spread out across history evenly, or were there, are there times of greater miraculous activity? Well, it, it depends on, it is a great question, and I think that, you know, everybody who owns a, uh, who owns an iPhone or uh, posts things on YouTube or whatever, they want to see more, you know, more out there uh, for the eye to see. And it's becoming harder and harder uh, with the, the technology that's out there to, uh, to, to wonder why more, more miracles aren't happening. But the fact is, miracles are happening each and every day. And uh, it's, uh, it's something that's consistent throughout the ages. But if you look uh, throughout, the, the data shows that perhaps in uh, in Europe, during the 12th, 13th, and 14th centuries, you see the greatest uh, spike in miracles if you were to look at the data specifically. But if you were to look at Marian apparitions uh, as a study, a case study, you would find that starting in 1981, you see a great uh, surplus of Marian apparitions being claimed throughout the United States and throughout the world. And uh, I detail this in my book, Science and the Miraculous, but it turns out that many people who have claimed uh, Marian apparitions in the United States and North America in general have been to uh, alleged apparition sites like Medjugorje and sort of brought home uh, visions of the Virgin Mary in their own kind of a way. So uh, different things can motivate people from making these claims. Only a small percentage are real, but uh, miracles are still happening in today's world. You know, the most famous Eucharistic miracle probably is Lanciano. Um, but I read an article recently that even in the last 100 or 200 years, there, there have been quite a few Eucharistic miracles. Do you, is that true? Is that something that continues to, to happen? Uh, is that part of, uh, of some of the, the research and study that you've done? Absolutely. So people can get the book Science and the Miraculous, my new book, and I have a chapter dedicated to Eucharistic miracles, or they can go to my website, miraclehunter.com, where I have every Eucharistic miracle ever claimed documented on my website, and you will see that there is a great uh, spike in the, the, the recent uh, century or so of Eucharistic miracles, and there are different types of Eucharistic miracles, but the type of uh, true, true flesh and true blood uh, made visible and manifest on a Eucharistic host, those are the kind that really catch people's attention. And what's interesting is that we started Lanciano at 750 AD approximately, as the first documented Eucharistic miracle. But uh, in many of the Eucharistic miracles are in the Catholic countries of Europe. But if you look at the more recent Eucharistic miracles, they're spread all around the world. And what's fascinating about them, and I document this in my book, is that all the cases are blood type AB and they're striated heart muscle. Hmm. And this goes back to the time when they didn't even have things like blood type uh, as far as a scientific study goes, or couldn't determine what kind of uh, tissue or muscle was present. So if you look at all the samples, even going back to Lanciano, they're all blood type AB. They all are of uh, striated heart tissue. And uh, and what's, what's fascinating is that the Shroud of Turin, the purported burial cloth of Christ, has markings of blood on it as well. That's also blood type AB, which is a rare blood type, except amongst Middle Eastern men. So it's uh, absolutely fascinating. Wow. Michael O'Neill's my guest, the Miracle Hunter. Something you said intrigued me, Michael. You said that uh, miracles are good, and I know there have been some... 
you know, bad things that happen to people that seem to be of so it, it may be not a miracle, but of supernatural uh, origin. Is there another category of like maybe a, a miracle that is done more demon by from a demonic influence, or at least a, a, a fallen angel, or, or is that a whole another category? Yeah, it's a great question, and I think we we need to make the distinction between supernatural and preternatural. Those would be the two adjectives in in the differentiation between those two categories. And as for me, I I do recognize, of course, as a uh, a believer, I know that the devil exists. I know the devil is active in this world, and I know that there is there is phenomena. There are phenomena that that occur that. that are, you know, from out, out of this world and from the dark side, not from the light side. But uh, for my work and what I study, I, I tend to put my focus on those things of the light, those things that inspire people and those things that, uh, that really show God's presence. So certainly the devil is there, the devil is active, but we have nothing to fear when we've got yeah. God. So if you, uh, uh, you mentioned the Tilma and the Shroud, a couple of the very well-known, uh, you know, mirac- miraculous uh, items in the world, what can you can you give our listeners maybe one of the more obscure ones that you find really fascinating but maybe few people have heard of does anything come to mind well when we talk about akhirapoita images which is the greek word for meaning not made from human hands we think of those two very famous examples the tomb of our lady of guadalupe or the shroud of turin and of course the shroud of turin has never been shown to be the actual burial cloth of Christ, although the evidence certainly points that way. But we can talk about other cases throughout the world. We can talk about Our Lady of Absam in Austria, this image of Our Lady that appeared on a pane of glass. Or we can talk about uh, Our Lady of Las Lajas in the 700, uh, 1700s in Colombia, where it's been said that there's an image emblazoned in stone uh, in, a, in a cavern that goes six feet deep, the color does. And so that's sort of the uh, Our Lady of Guadalupe of Colombia, for example. So there's a handful of these images that uh, science has never really uh, been able to explain what's going on with that. And I detail these in my book, Science and the Miraculous. It's absolutely amazing some of the things that are claimed, and more study needs to be done. But uh, but these miracles are are remarkable, and uh, they certainly catch people's attention. And Eucharistic miracles, I think, are the the real case where science can truly validate that something remarkable is going on. Uh, we have all sorts of miracles that have question marks, perhaps, but Eucharistic miracles are the most Loctite uh, of all the miracle types where science can be involved. And I was uh, excited to buy, write about that in the book, Science and the Miraculous. Wow. Um, when when uh, I, I just have so many questions, I, I really find what you do to be fascinating. When when you hear of uh, you know a, a miracle, uh, gosh, a, a healing service, and whether it be Catholic or not, or somebody on TV saying that they can heal people, in light of the research that you've done, do you typically tend to give them the benefit of the doubt that they have this um, ability, or do you are you more suspicious? Um, I am completely suspicious. So I think that a lot of people would assume that a guy who calls himself the miracle hunter believes absolutely everything that's ever claimed. And I'm, I'm re- ready to put my stamp of approval and post it on my website for anything that's uh, remotely uh, sniffs of a miracle. But I'm really a skeptic as much as I am a believer. I need to be see- I need to be shown the proof when it comes to these things. These don't, uh, uh, complete my faith in any kind of a way. They certainly give me a boost when I find a real miracle. But uh, when it comes to these things, I'm a, I'm such a skeptic. I really need to see that 
where, where does the evidence show? How has the church investigated? Who are the witnesses? Who are the recipients of the miracle? And uh, I really like to dig in deep. And, and my general tendency is to assume that there's probably a natural explanation or that the hoax or something else going on. But on those very rare occasions where we see a true miracle happening, that's real cause for excitement. Yeah. Um, just a few minutes remaining, and I mentioned at the top that you have been, you had been in Dallas recently speaking to the St. Thomas More Society. Thanks for listening to KATH 910 AM, Frisco, Dallas, Fort Worth. Catholic radio for your soul on the Guadalupe Radio Network in North Texas. Heard also at grnonline.com and on your smartphone. 